0: after church (laughs) (laughs) or or next week Sunday it's a little bit like going to the hairdresser right like you have these conversations and then they stop and you have to wait a week to continue figure out what is happening with those people in their lives okay well good morning again it's good to be here we're gonna continue well first let me introduce myself Uh, my name is Adri. And I'm on the teaching team with Jamie and Pastor Heidi and uh, Annie. And uh, I personally work with InterVarsity full-time ministry with students who study abroad. So there you go. It's always good to clap for that. Uh, And we've been in... um, Could could we put the sound down a little bit? Because I hear a lot of echoing. Um, We've been in our uh, sermon series around story, thinking about some of the really big themes in the Bible. And um, you might have heard from jamie already it 's been a little bit of a struggle sometimes because there's so many books in the bible there 's sixty six of them there 's so many to kind of encapsulate all those big themes like into like one sermon is, is sometimes hard but we 're trying, and I think we 're getting along with some of the, the themes that we 've been talking about. Uh, Pastor Jamie talked about uh, the theme of heaven and earth in the Bible and how heaven at times intersects with the world the physical world we live in, and those moments where the kingdom of God can be seen. And then last week he talked about the covenant, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel and then the covenant he made with us. Uh, Today we're going to talk about what I call homebound. We'll talk about the tension between home and exile, being away from home. And exile is a really big theme in the Bible, so we'll be talking about that. And then next week we'll talk about the presence of Jesus, um, and specifically I think within the context of our church and what that means today. Um, but before we go into that, I just want to take some time to pray for the sermon, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Well, dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this Sunday morning. Thank you for your word. That's the living word. I, I pray that your word will speak to us today, um, specifically through a difficult topic like exile and home and the tension of being in exile and what that means for us. I pray that you will uh, use this time and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So homebound. What does home mean? I, I think home might have different connotations for different people here in the audience. Some some of you might uh, have some negative experiences with home. but that's that's. And I want to acknowledge that. That might be very well true. Maybe grew up in a home that wasn't very good. Or maybe you're even going back to a home today that isn't really what you would like home to be like. Uh, but when I talk about home today, I really want to talk about that, that idea of home in in the sense of a good thing. It's a, a, a place of belonging where you feel at home, like where words like homey come from, right? We don't use the word homey to describe something negative. We just desc- use it to describe something positive. Um, for me, home, and thinking back, <coughs> growing up in the Netherlands, uh, Home, for me, looked a certain way, and I, I just pack, picked kind of a random time, maybe around the age I was 16, and I was uh, just going to school as a high school student. Home might have looked like this. After a day at school, which ended around 3 or 4 p.m., I would get on my bike and bike home. Of course, it would be raining. The weather is very similar to that in Portland or Seattle, so it would be raining. And uh, Now, there are these nifty things called rain jackets and rain pants that work great, but I was 16, and I was way too cool for that. So, <clears throat> by the time I got home, I'd be soaked wet, I'd be cold, and I walked into my home, and it'd be warm. My mom would be there, she was a home, stay-at-home mom, and she would always have tea or coffee ready and, and one cookie. If you know anything about Dutch culture, that's kind of what it is. You have a box with cookies, it opens up, you take one cookie out, and they close it again, it's like <laughs> one cookie. <clears throat> and then my mom really would asked, like, how was your day? And it was this time of debrief, and she really was interested in how my day had been. And then I'd probably do some homework, and at 6 p.m. my dad would come home from work, and we all share a meal together, and uh, we all knew as kids that it was time for dad to do his debrief, so at least the first 10 minutes we had to be quiet, and we couldn't interrupt, and we just listened to the stories that he told about work, and he's a pretty good storyteller, so even though sometimes it was maybe not the most interesting thing to listen to. A lot of the stories are still with me. I, I still know some of his random like, names of colleagues from like 25 years ago. Um, and then probably did some more homework, and then at 8 p.m. we would be called downstairs. We had like three stories in our house, and so we'd be called down, like my mom would be yelling at us uh, because it was coffee time. Dutch people drink coffee any time of the day, doesn't matter, 8 p.m. is coffee time. And so we'd come downstairs and watch the 8 o'clock news together. And... Home for me was this uh, place that I was known, that I I felt safe, and where I was loved. And I think as a 16-year-old, I, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but that just felt like that's what, what home was. Later on, as I've worked with international students and students who study abroad, I've realized that um, there's also part of home for me. Is some of these things are cultural, cultural identity that I might not share with people here, like biking through the rain, from school, It might not be something that you have experienced, or um, some. Some I think it might have been last semester. I talked about Sinterklaas, this kind of Santa person that comes early on in December, and it's a little different. And to me, that gives feeling of of home. Um, or watching the Dutch soccer team. I still when I watch that, that gives me a feeling. I mean, besides like I really really want them to win, it also gives me the feeling of home. And uh, when I ask internationals, what do you miss about home? Of course, they talk about. The people, like their parents, their sister, their brother, or their friends. A lot of the time they also talk about food. So home encapsulates a lot of things. It's kind of hard to just give it a very specific definition. But I think I really uh, started thinking about what home was when when I started to leave home. Uh, A lot of us around the age of 18 or 19... um, move away from home. It might be because to study, it might be because you're uh, getting a job, or whatever the reason might be. And I got the opportunity to study an hour and a half away from my parents. Now, that might not mean a lot here. That might just be around the corner in Holland. You just as well live on the other side of the world. That is far away. And I remember my dad uh, dropping me off at my apartment, and, and he left to go back home. And I was like, well, but Where does that leave me? right? (laughs) Where am I right now? This doesn't feel like home yet. This is just kind of an empty apartment. And and I think it took me a year and a half before that place started feeling a little bit like home. And even more so, I started thinking about what home meant when I met Kelly in Austria. And um, I, of course, wanted to introduce her to my parents, and so we took a plane in a really roundabout way, uh, but we finally ended up in Holland and uh, spent about a week there. And then after that, my dad dropped us off at a train station in Germany. And uh, it was all fun. It was just kind of a fun-saying-goodbye kind of moment. And then he brought us to the train. We stepped in. The door started to close, and I saw my dad tearing up. I was like, oh, darn it. Like You have to do it the moment the door closed, right? Like, I, I, it's nothing I can do anymore. And, and again, it's like, where is my home? Is that with my parents, or is this now with this new person I've met? And what, what is that going to look like? But I think the moment that most made me wonder about what home was was when uh, Ken and I already been married, we had Deborah, Jonas, our son wasn't born yet, and uh, we made the decision to move to the U.S. And partly it was a decision, partly felt like a calling. God had opened up doors that, that seemed uh, they would stay closed, and they opened up. A part of it was like we wanted to be also close to Kelly's parents, but you had to kind of make a choice. You're either going to live close to one set or the other. And so there came the day that my parents and my sister brought our little family to Amsterdam airport and uh, we kind of tried to stay together as long as possible, eat uh, a little uh, dessert and have some coffee and kind of inching closer to the security. And then it comes that moment when you have to say goodbye. And my, my parents are um, great at prolonging goodbyes as long as they can. And so. You might have seen this happen at airports where, like, people go through and on the other side they keep waving until the last minute you, you, you can't see the person mm. anymore. And that's exactly what they did in the Amsterdam airport. You can kind of keep walking and, and, and looking back and looking back. And I really felt as if the barrier was getting bigger and bigger between what had been my home or still felt like home. And that was my parents, my country, and all these things. And, and kind of going to this inevitable, like, I can't be there anymore. And I, I didn't know when I was going to be back. It Eventually, was two years before I was able to, to visit them again. And um, I think it even became more aware of it the day after, when we had arrived in the U.S., um, slept the night, and then that morning went with uh, my daughter to some play equipment. It was a beautiful day, and there was everything to say, like, this is a... Just a happy day, but I wasn't feeling happy. I felt as far away from home as I'd ever felt. And I think if I want to use the word exile for anything, because I wasn't forced to do this, but it felt like I had no way to go back. I felt trapped. And if I wanted to use the word exile, I think that is the moment that I got the closest to that uh, place, being far away from home. And I think also there for me, the concept of home changed a little bit from, is it a place, is it people, and I decided, like, home is this place where my wife is, where my daughter is, where my son is. That feels like home. But the Bible says that home is where God is. It's a, it's a deeper sense of home, and it's this place that we're all longing for, is that kind of place or that hole inside of us that we can't fill ourselves, uh, but only God can. And that's what I want to do today, is, is look at the larger story of the Bible. And I think when we do that, I'll just go through the Old Testament and the New Testament. But of course, we start in Genesis, like Jamie has been saying. We seem to always go to Genesis. It must be his favorite book. Um, but Genesis starts with home. It's two people living in relationship with God, who are known by God. They feel safe, and they feel loved. It's this perfect uh, picture of home. Maybe not how you picture home, but that's definitely the intention of the author to describe this perfect home environment. Um, and I would love to stay more in those first two chapters of Genesis, but always chapter three happens and we have sin. And now sin is one of those words. That uh, it's hard to talk about. We use different ways of translating it. Sometimes we say it's disobedience, or uh, what? Wh- what is it exactly? It's, it's cutting of relationships. And I just thought I, I pull out a little story from a book that I call um, the Little Book of Sin. I really honestly thought that's what it was called. I looked it up on Amazon, couldn't find it. It's because the title is The Smell of Sin. So it's, it's completely in the fresh air of grace. I didn't even notice there is a subtitle to it as well. I read this years ago, and this story keeps popping up because what the author here does is he takes the story of the prodigal son and he says the story of the prodigal son is about home and it's this story that is shocking to the people that listen to it to a level that it doesn't feel shocking to us. It's just culturally so different. That we don't quite, I mean, we can kind of understand that it is shocking that somebody says, I want all your money and leave, but it doesn't necessarily always resonate with us as well. And so he writes another story and he says, This is actually what Jesus is trying to do, to kind of shock his audience. So let me read this story. It's called A Hot Breakfast. Just imagine you're back at home with your parents, you've slept in and are aroused from your grogginess by the rich smells of bacon and coffee. You smile and roll out of bed. Rounding the corner into the kitchen, you see an intense spread on the Bible, all your, f- oh, not the Bible, on the table. I don't know what I'm reading into here. Uh, it's a very, yeah, very Christian home. Uh, all, your, all your favorites. A pile of steaming bacon on platter in the middle, a huge carafe of orange juice looks fresh squeezed, cheddar cheese thickly seeping out of the four egg omelet on your plate, you smile and sigh. Your family around the table is chatting as only family can. They smile as you enter the room. Then you see her. She straightened up in the front of her of, of the oven. And as she turns you, see her familiar faded lilac apron and a tray of fresh cinnamon rolls that fills the room with the hope of a good day. She walks over with a quick smile and a wink and sets the tray right next to your place at the table. A gentle, good morning, honey, invites you to take your seat with the family. Your youngest sister starts to giggle, just because. Because it's a good morning. And she's at home with her family. You walk up to your lovely mom, and spit directly in her face. That's what it's like, Jesus says. Afterward, the room would be dead silent, of course. Mom would quickly close both eyes, and the spit would drip slowly down her shocked, hurt face. She would most likely raise her apron more to hide her face than to clean it. That's what sin smells like. Sin always takes place in a home. Sin is a revolt against a loving parent. No disappointed teacher, rather a hurt father, an insulted mother. No stern look, so much as quiet, deep weeping. And sin results directly in that cut-off relationship with God. That's what we talk about when we talk about exile. That relationship has been broken in a way that is really deep and hurtful. And we see in Genesis 3 that there's real consequences. In Genesis 3:23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him, in this case Adam, but Adam and Eve, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And I wonder what it must have felt like for Adam and Eve being outside and knowing they can't go back. I, I assume the closest I can get to is Amsterdam airport. <laughs> and, and seeing, going through security and knowing I can't go back. And of course, that wasn't a permanent situation for them. This is permanent. And from that moment, it's not just permanent for them. We, humanity lives in exile. But the story of God doesn't end there. I often tell students, like, this could have been the end of the Bible, right? It's like, okay, you messed up, forget it, we're done. Uh, this, the, the story of the Bible is driven by God. And God loves us and didn't give up and says, this relationship matters enough for me to continue to pursue it. And so we see that he um, chooses Abraham, And he promised, and this is a famous promise in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that's kind of the part that we always remember. But what it also says is that Abraham had to leave his home country. He had to leave everything he knew to go to a place. Yeah, it was a promised land, but he didn't know what it looked like. He didn't know what he was going to find there. He had to go into exile, into a place he didn't know, so that people he, like his descendants, who he had never met before, were going to have a home. I think that's important to remember because we're going to, later on in the Bible, see a similar story of somebody who leaves home in order for other people to have a home. And then we see this kind of This theme of home and exile continues throughout the Old Testament. Let me just mention a few of them. Jacob leaves his home, and I think we talked about this last week, to avoid his brother. He's made his brother pretty mad, and he goes into exile to live with Laban for multiple years before he's able to go back and uh, reconcile with his brother. Joseph is forced into exile by his brothers, taking him into, or selling him as a slave. And he goes into exile into Egypt, but because he is there, God uses his and saves his family from famine. And then Moses, in a sense, all he knows in his entire life is exile, even though he grows up in an Egyptian home with the the, the princes and and the king. Uh, It might have felt like home, but we see early on that he is really upset when an Egyptian mistreats a, a, a Jewish Person and, and he kills this Egyptian. He has to then go into exile as a nomad for a long time before he then finally God uses him to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt into the desert, which probably also felt like exile. And he never actually gets to the place that God has promised him. He brings the people of Israel through exile into this promised land that he never gets to see. So interesting themes of exile and home. But I think when we think of exile in the biblical sense, we often think of exile from uh, the Babylonian captivity. And so let me talk a little bit about that, give you a little bit of background in that, and then we'll continue from there. So after Moses and Joshua get, like, uh, take the country of, of what, what is then Israel, uh, or God gives it to them. They, they live in the promised land. And you would think, well, everything is going to go upwards from there. Uh, but it doesn't. They uh, soon forget about what God has done for them. And they start to worship pagan gods. And then God sends nations to, um, to attack them. And they cry out to God. And then God sends a judge. And these judges give temporary relief. Uh, people like Deborah, which is my daughter's name. Um, but also Samuel. Uh, or not Samuel. Samuel. Um, samson i'm just (laughs) there's a whole bunch of them and we see this kind of happen over and over again there's this temporary relief people come back to worship god and then they fall back to their old ways of uh pagan worship eventually the judges don't seem to be very effective anymore and uh the people of israel are are, are are crying out again to god like we want a king like all the other nations around us and so uh, Samuel anoints David. David is his man after God's own heart. And it seems to go again on the upswing. Things seem to be going better. David is is most of the time doing what God wants him to do. And uh, even then Solomon, it seems to even get a little better. The temple gets built, the place where God will live among the Israelites. But then towards the end of Samuel's life, it goes downhill again. No, not Samuel, sorry, Solomon's life. Um, so at the end of Solomon's life, he starts... Uh, worshiping other gods, the gods that his wives and concubines are worshiping, and that has real impact again, real consequences. And what we see after Solomon's life is that the kingdom gets cut up in two two, uh, parts. We have the ten uh, tribes in the north who become the kingdom of Israel in the north, and then we have the kingdom of Judah in the south. And uh, then the, the story kind of continues like it does with the judges. All these Sometimes there's a king that follows God and then the people of Israel or the people of Judah follow this king and also worship God. And then they fall away again. They kind of go back and forth and it just kind of gets worse from there on. In 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and they, uh, they decimate the northern kingdom. They take people exile. And from that moment onwards, we don't really hear anything about those ten tribes again. And so the only... Um, uh, country that we, we, we know about at that moment is the one in the south, the one of Judah. And uh, they keep kind of going on for another 100 years. And then in uh, six, between 612 BC and 587 BC, the Babylonians invade Judah. And um, they, they don't do that lightly. They destroy the temple. They destroy the royal offices of David. And they take the elite, the the people that had any type of influence, they take him out of Jerusalem into Babylon and, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar II, and um, yeah, that is until this moment. I have used the word exile as kind of a generic term of just being away from home. Um, the Hebrew word gala can both mean anything from departing, like I did at Amsterdam Airport, you just kind of departing, right? Yeah. Um, to all the way to being carried away as captives. So there can be different weight in, in, in these words. Um, but the latter part, like this kind of forced removal, reminds me of a friend back in, in Holland. He's actually originally from Pakistan. And when he lived there, uh, he was a journalist. He's a Christian and a journalist. And that was not a good combination, uh, according to some of the groups that lived there. They didn't like what he had to say, uh, he was open about his faith. And uh, at a certain time, they caught him, they tortured him, and he realized he had to leave. Uh, Somehow, through some connections, he got a plane ticket to go to the Netherlands. He didn't even know where he was going to end up. He actually only figured out where he was when the the plane landed. And he went through the immigration process and at the same time tried to study. And that's how we met him, because we were in student ministry. And so um, he came to our group. And I, I saw the heart he had for Pakistan. And he really wanted to go back but he also realized he really couldn't go back. and uh, It was even made clear a couple years in later, when his dad was killed by the same group, that it wasn't safe for him to go back. Nowadays he lives in Germany, and he has a family, and he's doing well, but he still has the desire uh, to want to be in Pakistan, but he simply can't. And I think that is what exile is, much more than me moving to the U.S. It's, it's a real painful situation. Another disc- um, definition of of the word exile is the enforced removal from one's native country. When I read that, of course, I had to think of Native Americans who were uh, forcefully removed from around this even this area. And Kelly does a lot of grant writing and writes grants also for some uh, Native American uh, groups. And um, she let me read this article about boarding schools through the 50s, where Native American kids were taken away from their parents, put in these boarding schools, and they weren't allowed to speak their language. They were not allowed to, 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 to act uh, according to their culture. They were not allowed to follow their spiritual beliefs. And what, what happened is that there's this loss of cultural identity. Um, there's generational trauma. People end up in poverty. And, and the goal of it is really to assimilate these people into society so they won't be a nuisance. And that, in a sense, is what we see in uh, the book of, of Daniel as well. It's like retraining of some of the elites so they become like the Babylonians. And so you're taking away somebody's cultural identity and these people can't be any trouble for you anymore. And then no doubt that's what the Babylonians were trying to do. Just crush a culture, and then you can assimilate and you've really um, complete victory. It must have felt to the Jewish people as the end. It was for the Northern Kingdom. But instead, amazingly enough, God used this as a pivotal moment in Jewish history. It became a moment of deep reflection What does it mean that we've been removed from the land that God has promised us? What does it mean that the temple that God lives in has been destroyed? What does it mean that David's descendants would always be on the throne and now the royal office has been destroyed and our king is gone? And suddenly the way they looked at the past shifted. They started reinterpreting the way that the prophets had spoken in the past. Maybe those prophets were right. They started writing down these stories. This is the place where a lot of our Old Testament is written down for the first time that we still use today. Synagogues didn't exist before that time. And the way we do church is, is somewhat based on the way that people in synagogues congregate. That, that those places weren't there before because there was the temple. And that's where you went to worship. And so now there are suddenly synagogues. And people had the realization of that they had not been keeping the covenant with God, that they had completely and utterly failed, but nonetheless God had been pursuing them. And that was a really needed change of perspective. And as as you read about this exile as a reader, you might think, well, this is the end for the Jews, but it isn't like 70 years in, under King Cyrus, the temple is rebuilt, the walls of the city are rebuilt, and things start to look up. But when the Jews go back, they find a home that isn't like under Jewish rule, but it's still oppressed by the nations around them. What they find is that there are still lots of people worshipping pagan, um, pagan gods, and so there is this shift from home is this physical place, to home is this spiritual place. And we're still in exile, even though we live in the Promised Land, so exile isn't necessarily this physical thing, it is this spiritual thing. It happens, this really is exile in, in our relationship to God, and that is the place that Jesus steps into. He steps into a Jewish world that longs for home, that longs for restoration. Abraham, like I said earlier, left home for his descendants' sake. And now Jesus leaves his heavenly home, goes into exile, makes his home among us, and does that so that others then can come home. And I I think you can see the depth of exile that Jesus goes through on the cross. Matthew 27, he hangs on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me this is as far away from home as you possibly can be and because of that god uses that just like abraham who went into exile for his descendants god uses this and through jesus we're now able to go home So in the meantime, we live in this interesting tension where, just like the Jews realized, we're not home yet, at least not fully. We talked about the kingdom of heaven and how heaven intersects with earth. And there's these moments when we obey the the king, the kingdom of heaven can be seen. There's these moments where we kind of almost peek into what heaven looks like. But it's these kind of moments. It's not constant. And we're still waiting for Jesus to come back and to really, truly bring us home and so we live in that tension. And I've really felt that um, because doing international student ministry, um, I had a vision. And actually, I think I had that vision here in this church years ago where I saw this church filled up with people, international people from all places to worship God. And that's what I wanted to see happen on campus. And at times we had 40 people come together. Sometimes we had two people come together. But I've not seen that. I've not seen that vision become a reality in the eight or nine years that I did international student ministry. And um, in some conversation with Kelly, when I was really frustrated about that, she says, the reason you don't see that happen is because you're longing for heaven. You're longing for home. Some of these things are not yet going to be uh, complete. It's like in Revelation 7-9. This is kind of the vision, so I'll just read it. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what I would love to see happen. And that's that place where I think we will see some of that happen, but we won't see all of that happen until that day. So, where does that leave us? It's always the problem with these really big themes, like how do you like, bring that down to something a little smaller? I think the first thing that is the most important thing, what I realized when I dealt with the theme of home and exile, is that I, w- I want to do something, but really it is God who's taken the first step. God has said, well, you, you, you didn't want to be home in the first place, right? Genesis 1 and 2, you decided you wanted to do things differently. But I'm still going to go after you. I'm still going to step out there. I'm still going to step into your place of exile and pitch my tent there, make my home there. And um, that's what Jesus did, right? Like God incarnate, God in the flesh, he pitched his tent among us. He walked among us. Uh, He decided if we couldn't go home, he would make his home with us here. And that's even what we see through um, some of the epistles, where it says in Romans eight eleven the spirit that dwells in you, and you plural, so here in this church, the spirit of God dwells, makes his home with us. In 2 Corinthians 6, it says, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Again, it's God's initiative to already dwell with us. And in in uh, Colossians, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So whenever we open up the Bible and we take his word seriously, the, the word of Christ, the message of Christ dwells in us. God has decided that what we couldn't do, he's doing by making his home with us. And then maybe we get to the question, what do we do? Well, before I answer that, I, uh, towards the end of like, putting this sermon together, I, I read Hebrews 11. And the, the author of Hebrews um, in 11 starts to talk about all the faith of the people that have gone before. And I found it a big encouragement. Um, so let me read this and, and focus on the faith of Abraham. So this is 11.8. was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous of the stars in the sky and as countless as sands on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of plout of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And if you were reading along, I, I skipped quickly to the, last, the, the beginning of chapter 12. Um, so what I want to leave you with is the encouragement on the one hand that God dwells with us, and that's encouraging that uh, there's not a whole lot we can do on this side. On the other hand, what we can do is like Abram, To have faith in what is yet unseen. To have hope in that which will be, but we don't see it right now. And that is what people throughout history have done. And so I do want to give you a simple step. I always think of application. What can you do this week? Um, And so I was going back to that place. I keep going back, Amsterdam Airport, going through security and feeling that kind of barrier getting bigger and bigger and feeling like I couldn't go back. But one of the things I did, and this is the beautiful thing about uh, modern day technology, when I came to the US I decided I'm going to stay in contact with my parents very regularly. And for the last 10 years, every Saturday, almost every Saturday, at 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning, because of time differences, that's the only time that really works, uh, you'll see me on Skype, or nowadays a different type of technology, and, and checking in with my parents and sometimes i 'm excited because stuff has happened that week I really want to share sometimes i 'd rather be doing something else on my Saturday morning. This is not being recorded, is it <laughs> but I, I felt like having that just something that I do every week has really helped me stay in contact with them, keeping that that, that relationship of home that is so important alive and I think that is the simple takeaway of today is to Put some kind of structure in your life, whatever it might look like, to, to spend time with God. And I know we have done EHR, we've done all kinds of things, like spending time quietly or reading your Bible, whatever that might look like. But have something in your life that does that, that connects you with the home that we all eventually will,
1: uh, will go to. God, let all creatures here on earth sing your praises to remind this world that this isn't home, that there is something yet to come. And God, for those of us this morning who feel far from home, who are feeling the pain of exile, the pain of uh, being separated, God, the pain of not seeing the things that we want to see, we pray that this morning that faith would rise up in us and we would hold fast to your word this morning that this is not the ending and this is not the final answer, but God, there is something greater yet to come, that the best is ahead of us. Jesus, we praise you for this, and we pray that as we walk in this place, we'd be filled with the joy of knowing that your spirit is alive and at work and that you are drawing all things to you. In your name, everybody said, amen. So go in the grace of the Lord and the love of Jesus, who does love you deeply. And Heidi and I love you too. Amen. Audrey, thank you. That was a word.